We are continuing to work our way, uh, slowly but surely, uh, through the uh, uh, book of uh, Luke. Keep your finger there, if you would, in uh, Luke 18. And I want to uh, have you turn back just for a moment to uh, uh, Luke chapter 4. And uh, I was so blessed by Gwendolyn standing up and sharing that. Uh, And I mentioned it in the prayer, and I just want you to see it again uh, because it's so crucial and central to what Jesus is about, to what the church is about uh, today, and uh, what I trust and believe uh, the Berean church is about, and the theme that Scott Valley is a healing place, that Jesus sets captives free, and he uses us uh, to do that, okay? In Luke chapter 4, verse 18, Jesus said this at the beginning of his ministry. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, okay? Recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. Okay, that's the work of the enemy. The enemy oppresses people, okay? Uh, And Jesus sets captives free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, okay? Mark that in your Bible and read it again and again. It's a fulfillment of Isaiah's words in Isaiah 61, okay? And it is the mission of the church today as we proclaim the gospel. Jesus died on the cross. He rose from the dead. He's coming again. And the ongoing mission is that captives can be set free. Do you know you can be a believer and know Jesus and still have some areas of captivity in your life? Okay? Christians that have sat in church all their lives can deal with depression, can deal with anger, can deal with fear, can deal with a multitude of addictions, okay? I've told you many times that one of Billy Graham's daughters wrote a book called There's a Heartache in Every Pew. Every one of these pews has heartache in it, okay? You don't believe me? You don't know what you're talking about, okay? It's true. And we want to proclaim the gospel. Yes, Jesus died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead, and we can have eternal life. But we also proclaim walking in freedom in our lives with whatever that is, okay? And we have groups in our church that talk about those issues, okay? Whatever they, they might be. So Jesus came to set captives free. Yes, from the penalty of sin, but also lives of addiction, uh, hopelessness, despair, whatever it is, okay? And the two go hand in hand. So I want to thank you again, Gwendolyn, for having the courage to share that. That was a blessing, okay? So look, what do we have here in uh, Luke chapter uh, 18, okay? Jesus tells a parable, okay? We see that in verse one of Luke 18. And we know as we've studied parables that parables provoke active mental engagement, okay? The purpose of a parable is to get you thinking, okay? So when you hear a parable, there's no place for daydreaming or thinking about the football game that's on this afternoon. Jesus and the Holy Spirit and God's word and me, I want you to engage. What is being said here? What does this mean? Okay, we know a parable is a earthly, uh, uh, tangible story from daily life, but it has a spiritual point. 
Okay, active mental engagement, and this is what Jesus tells parables uh, for. So Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Now, what I find interesting about verse 1 here is that typically with a parable, the parable is told, and then the audience is going, hmm, what did that mean? What, what did the seed mean? Uh, what did he mean by this, you know? And people are thinking, and you can just hear their voices under their breath saying, what's he saying? Well, Luke, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, tells us right up front what this parable is about. And I can't tell you why, okay? But he just says, this is what this parable is about, okay? So you know going into it, and maybe the parable sinks in deeper because we know where it's going. Where is it going, Okay. Always to pray and not to give up. And that's why I've entitled this message, Pray and Wait. Anybody prayed for something for a long, long time and seen nothing happen? We could all put up both of our hands. After a while, it gets tiresome, frustrating, disheartening. You lose heart and saying, Lord, hello, is anybody up there? Okay? And I don't think the Lord is upset by that. Okay? Be honest. I have lots of things that I've prayed for the long time. And the other day, I'll get a little. I said, God, how long am I going to pray for this? And I was upset. I was mad. I was disheartened. Okay, so I find particular application in my own personal life is, Lord, we pray and we pray and we pray and we pray and we pray. When's the answer going to come? You know what? God is not upset by that. Be honest. Be real. If you read the Psalms, and we're going to see some of them in a moment, God is very comfortable with that. He would rather have honest communication, authentic communication with you, than God is great, God is good, thank you for this food, let's eat. Okay, that's not real communication. If you're married, you know that's not real communication. Okay? Okay? Be honest, be real, and that's part of what this is about. We're all praying thing, for things, and we have prayed thing, for things, and we've grown disheartened. So what do we have here? We have a parable to illustrate how important this is to pray and to not give up. Okay, verse 2. In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. Okay. David Guzik is a Calvary Chapel pastor, and he's written a, a series of commentaries called Enduring Word, and I would recommend it to you if you're studying the Bible and you need some insight on something. And he says that this is a Roman judge, okay? If you're in Hebrew culture, a Jewish culture and society, okay, elders were set up in areas, and if there was a dispute, people could go to those elders, rabbi-type folks, and they could get an answer to the dispute, Okay? Romans appointed judges, singular judges in certain areas, and they dealt with disputes and, and legal problems and, and disputes between people, okay? Now, we know from this characteristic that we have here that this uh, judge is a bit of a loose cannon. Probably not very grounded morally, ethically, with the law or whatever, because it says he doesn't fear God and he doesn't care what people think. Basically, he's a law unto himself, Okay? And David Guzik makes the point that most of these Roman judges answered questions or disputes based on who gave them the largest bribe. 
Okay? But this woman is desperate. She's a widow. We know in that uh, day and age that there was no safety net for orphans and widows. That's why the church is instructed specifically to help with orphans and widows. So she's got no legal representation. She's desperate. She probably has no money. So she goes to this guy and basically bangs on his door till she gets an answer. Persistent prayer is the point of this persistent widow. Okay? So look what it says in verse 3. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. We don't know what the legal issue is. We don't know what the dispute is. But somebody as an adversary or an opponent or an enemy is coming against her and she has no recourse except to go to this judge who doesn't fear God and doesn't care what anybody thinks. Okay? She didn't pick the best guy in this case, but probably had no other choice. Verse 4. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. I can see him looking out his front window or hearing his door bang at six o'clock in the morning and saying, oh, geez, again, lady, get away. Give me a break. I'm sick of your whining. Go deal with it yourself. And he finally is just broken underneath this and says, okay, okay. In the original language, you almost get this sense of, of, of a, a boxer pummeling somebody again and again and again until they are subdued and say, okay, you win. I will help you. And that's exactly what happened in this case. Look at your outline there, if you would, please. The unjust judge doesn't care about God or people. Okay, he was a godless man. He didn't fear the Lord. He didn't know the law. He was all about himself, okay? The persistent widow needs legal intervention and the judge finally responds. Look what it says next. Verse six, and the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. So Jesus tells the parable to make active mental engagement. He's not going to let anybody sleep through this. He's going to wake them up and say, listen to what I'm saying. Pray. Don't give up. Then he makes this application. Listen to what the judge says. He finally gives in. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Now what often happens with parables is that we make... Uh, mistakes on seeing who represents what. Now, you could say, if you misunderstand this parable, well, geez, this unjust judge is like God in heaven. He's, he's unjust. He doesn't listen to prayers. He might give you an answer. He might not. Okay, that is not the point of this parable. There is one point of this parable, and Jesus uses an unscrupulous judge to demonstrate the point of praying and not giving up, okay? And we've seen that also in other parables. Peoples that you say, well, what's to admire about this guy? Well, you've missed the point if you think that. This is the point right here. One thing, simple story, pray a lot, don't give up, okay? So that's what he is telling us, okay? Look back at your outline, if you will. The parable ends with a haunting question. Look down at the end. Verse 8. I tell you, he will see that they get justice. That's us. That's God's people. And quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? 
This question disturbs me. Because that's a commentary about his people and his church. And Jesus is throwing out this question, when I return, is there anybody still going to be praying and following me and being close to Jesus? Now, we could look at our culture, and many are drifting away from the Lord, and you hear reports almost weekly of churches being empty, and people aren't reading the Bible, and all kinds of stuff. I don't buy that totally. Maybe there's some characteristics of that somewhere. I think there's lots of people that still love Jesus in the world and that are following this book and that are praying for revival. And I love the reports from Africa and China and Europe and other places of untold hundreds and thousands of people coming to Christ. I was talking to a friend this past week and he was talking about a report that he heard from Iran of thousands of Iranians that are coming to Jesus. They are looking at the Muslim faith and saying, there's no hope here. Absolutely no hope. And they are getting satellite broadcasts on their TVs that are coming into the house that the government can't control because it's not on the internet. It's coming from satellite dishes. And I told you the story about the one lady who's listening to a gospel broadcast on a little black and white TV in her apartment in Iran. And she has a vision of Jesus who speaks to her and says, what you are hearing there is true. They're talking about me. And she gave her life to Jesus. Folks, it's happening all over the globe, okay? So don't buy all the reports that everything's terrible and the world's going to hell in the handbasket and Christians are a bunch of hypocrites and all that stuff, okay? Jesus is doing wonderful things. Is there wickedness and bad things going on? Yes, there are. Okay? If you're getting too stuck on that, I'm just going to say, get a change of heart. Get a change of attitude. Get a change of the input that you're bringing into your mind. Okay? God is working. Great things are happening. And we need to celebrate that. But Jesus still asks this question, I believe, by way of warning, saying, you know what? If you've been praying for a long time and see no answer, you could lose heart after a while. Say amen with me. Amen. And I said it earlier, and I'll say it again. We've all got requests that we've been praying for for 10, 20, 30 years and wondered if it will ever change. I told you when I was still back east, I came back for a visit, and Lynn Bryan walked up to me and said, Mike Bryan gave his heart to Christ. I about had a cardiac arrest said, what? Mike Bryan gave his life to Christ? I mean, he's a tough nut Irishman that doesn't crack very well. Okay? Well, you know what? God answers prayer. Okay? So that's what we are being challenged to do here. The next line there on your outline, prayer is hard work. And it is easy to lose heart. Would you keep your finger in Luke 18 and go over to the book of Psalms? Psalms 13, I've listed it there on your outline. And you're going to see this as many different places throughout your Bible, this question of how long. How long do you have to pray for a prodigal? How long do you have to pray for cancer? How long do you have to pray for a bad marriage that never seems to get better? How long do you have to pray for, you know, broken families and, you know, just all kinds of horrible stuff? Okay, 
It's upon all of us in one way or another. And look at Psalms 13, verse 1. You're going to see this four times. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? You ever feel forgotten? God, you're not hearing my prayer. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? You think God's hiding his face from you and he doesn't see you? That is your perception. It is not reality. God sees you in the darkest of moments, in the most awful of messes, in captivity to the worst addiction, the most depression that is crippling you, you feel enslaved. God sees you and he is with you and you need to read this book and see what God's power is and how he sees you, not your own perception. It's all about having a renewed mind. We get all kinds of stuff driven into our head like concrete, and it's not true. And that's why we say, Jesus, change my heart. Change my mind. May I see this thing differently. Read Romans 12, 1 and 2. It's all about renewing your mind, okay? Look what he says next in verse 2 of Psalms 13. How long must I wrestle with my thoughts? Anybody wrestle with your thoughts? You go to bed and you can't sleep, and that problem just goes around and around and around and around and around it goes. Folks, this is real life. So what do we do at that point? We either give up or let the thoughts terrorize us, which they can surely do, or we (coughs) we redirect those thoughts to who Jesus is, what his word says, worship music helps me at that moment, okay? And bring it back to God, this is who you say you are. This is who your word says I am. And though the prayer is not being answered as quickly as I'd like, you want me to keep following Jesus. Everybody say amen. Amen. I'm kidding you kind of hard here, but I think this is real stuff. And we all live here, okay? Whether we're willing to admit it or not. So four times, how long, O Lord? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? That person there in Psalm 13 could get to a point where he just says, forget it. Prayer doesn't do any good. This whole Christian life, waste of time, Forget it, I'm just going to go do my own thing. Prayer doesn't work. That's the conclusion that you can come to. And I hope by the time we're done, you'll realize that's not a good conclusion to come to. Okay? Go over to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 6. A disturbing picture of martyrs in the book of Revelation. But I think it's so important to see that these martyrs are saying the same thing. They have lost their lives for the faith of the gospel. Look at Revelation chapter 6, verse 9. Then he opened the fifth seal, and I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. Folks, today, people are losing their faith, their lives all over the globe because of the gospel. Martyrdom for Jesus is going on today at a faster pace than it has all throughout history. Okay? China, India, 
You know, uh, all kind. It, it's happening, okay? And what is this response? Verse 10. They called out in a loud voice, how long? Okay, there's that word. Praying for something and saying, God, are you going to ever answer this prayer? How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Okay? It's a bit of a gruesome picture, kind of like a Stephen King novel or movie or an Alfred Hitchcock gruesome something, whatever. Do you know what? If I was in a communist country and my child was killed by the government, I would say, God, go get them. I would have the same sense of vengeance and justice and saying, God, this is tragic. This is horrible. Why is evil triumphing? When are you going to come back and bring judgment on this situation? Very human response. There is injustice going on in the world. In the sex trafficking thing, girls are being abducted and shipped to Thailand as sex workers. And I pray, God, come and kill these people. Now you say, Drew, you're kind of out of control. Friends, we live in a wicked, unjust world, and I want to see God come and bring justice. Do I pray for people to get saved no matter how messed up they are? Of course I do. I do. But there's a human element of this also, like, God, how long till you come and bring justice to the earth? How long do you come and move on the prodigals and move on bad marriages, whatever it is? God intervene in these wretched, awful, messy situations. And what do we do in the meantime? We pray and don't give up. So you will have a war inside of you. God, when are you going to do this? You're asleep. You're on the couch. You're watching ESPN. Hello, God. Come on. You're going to have that war. It's going to happen inside of you. And what's Jesus' point? Keep praying and don't give up. Look back at your outline there. Prayer is its own reward where there are prayers are answered is, what's the word I'm looking for there? Prayer is its own word whether our requests are answered or not. Okay, I wrote the wrong word on my outline. Prayer is its own reward whether our requests are answered or not. Very crucial that we understand this. We've all prayed prayers and not seen an answer. Or it's not coming the time we'd like. Or it's not coming in the way we like. Or we're still waiting. Prayer is its own reward, whether our request is answered or not. What do I mean? Friends, when you pray, something good happens in you. You are changed. Now, it's going to take some time. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. It's going to take some persistence. I have the phrase there, giver and gift. Okay, A.B. Simpson was the founder of the Christian Missionary Alliance. Okay, and he had a book called, do you want the gift that you want, or do you want the giver of the gift? Something happens when you get still and quiet with Jesus, and you wait there, okay, and say, Holy Spirit, speak to me. Lord, this is what I need. This is what I want. This is what I'm praying for. I will give that to you. And then you sit there and you wait. We love getting jobs done. Aren't we all workaholics? 
Ain't it exciting to have a list of things you got to get done today and race through it like a maniac and get to the end of the day and say, look what I've done. Yes, I'm amazing. I grew up in this valley. I know what that's all about. It's a workaholic mentality that your value is defined by what you do. Friends, your worth and value is defined on who you are in Christ. Period. Okay? We have a hard time praying because we feel like we're doing nothing. And that is a lie from the pit of hell. Get still. Get quiet. Turn off your phone. Turn off your TV. Turn off your computer. Okay? Psalms 131, I'd encourage you to read it. It says, I have stilled and quieted my soul. What does that mean? When you're trying to pray and that little mouse is in your head going, and you can't pray because you're convinced you've got to get out and get 17 things done. Or you're upset and it's become an idol in your mind and you're worshiping at the foot of that idol because that problem is not the way you like it to be and you're going to get it fixed and get it taken care of and you're going to say this and on and on it goes. It is an idol in our minds. We live in a very broken and flawed world. Okay, that's just, we do, okay? We can go on a rampage every day about that, raging at the world and shaking our fists, or we're going to say, Jesus, this is my concern. I give it to you. And now in the meantime, I'm going to rest in you and ask for your Holy Spirit to give me your peace so I don't live like a monster from day to day. Prayer is its own reward. It'll change your life if you will devote some time to it. I have this little book here called uh, uh, Revelations of Divine Love. A lady named Julian of Norwich, okay, she worked in an uh, uh, um, Anglican, I don't know if you call it a monastery or what, uh, in the 14th and 15th century. And the Holy Spirit spoke to her about um, the love of God. I was driving here early this morning and a guy came on the radio singing that old George Beverly Shea song, The Love of God. And it just, it's so powerful when you think about God's love and who he is and what he's done. And Julian of Norwich says this, in all these revelations, God frequently showed that man and woman was all, that we were always doing God's will. Let me start over again. In all these revelations, God frequently showed that man was always doing God's will and ever expressing his worth. What this work is, in fact, was shown in the first revelation in the wonderful example of the action of truth and wisdom in the soul of of St. Mary. How I saw this, I'm hoping to show by the grace of God. Truth sees God. Wisdom gazes on God. And these two produce a third a holy, wondering delight in God, which is love. Do you ever sit and delight in what Jesus has done? Sit and delight in what Jesus has done. If you are completely broken and absorbed in the problems in this world and not stopping to say, Jesus, you died on the cross, you rose from the dead, All this stuff will overwhelm you and you will lose heart. Look back at your Bible there, please. 
I'd encourage you to read Luke 10, 38 to 42. It's all told there in the Mary and Martha story. Martha busy doing a lot of stuff, and Mary chose what's best and sat at the foot of Jesus. Let's go on. Look at Luke 18, verse 9. The parable is intended for the self-righteous. Okay? we got two people here that come, and I find it interesting that this Pharisee mentions his own self what, five times, I think? Maybe four times? Four times. Luke 18, 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed. The King James Version, and I love this, says, the Pharisee prayed to himself. That's a bad prayer life. Do you ever pray, or you think you're praying, and you're really talking to yourself? Okay, you're just going on and on about this and that and who knows what. And I'm sure the Lord is up in heaven going, hello, who are you talking to here? Yeah, I'm still here. Okay, circle those in your Bible if you care to. Verse 11, I thank you, I, that I am not like I. Or even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. It sounds like a narcissist that's absorbed with how wonderful he is. Okay? It's like somebody was telling me once about TV announcers. They never saw a mirror they didn't like. Just fascinated by their own image and saying, wow, what a handsome, what a beautiful, you know, whatever. Okay? That's what this Pharisee is doing. He is impressed by himself. Okay? Blank there? The parable is intended for the self-righteous. Okay? The Pharisee looks at others, plural others, then made a self-assessment. Okay? The next blank? The tax collector looks to God and demonstrated humility in his posture and self-assessment. See what it says. Verse 13, the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but be distressed and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Verse 14, I tell you that this man rather than the other went home justified, underline the word justified, before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This comes up again and again, especially in the Beatitudes and other places in the Gospels, and we can call it the great reversal, okay? In the world's eyes, these are the cool, hip, amazing, wonderful people. And they're on our television screens and on our magazine covers, and, you know, the world just thinks these people are great. Well, here's the people that don't really amount to much. Insignificant. There's never going to be a book written about them, Okay? When Jesus comes back, there's going to be a reversal that happens. And it's illustrated by the children in the next section. God is not impressed by LeBron James. He's not impressed by all the fancy, famous people in the world. He's not. He wants to see a broken heart that walks in humility and loves Jesus. Okay? This tax collector realizes that. And he comes into that temple saying, I am a sinner. 
He won't even lift up his head. And this Pharisee is impressed with his own self-assessment. You know the only one that's going to assess our lives or that should matter to us is what does Jesus think of me? Now Jesus demonstrated that when he died on the cross. He loves you so much, he died in your place. But the righteousness that he achieved is the only righteousness that matters. And that's why Paul, and I wrote it there, I think 2 Corinthians, uh, it's not on your outline, write down 2 Corinthians 5, 21, okay? It says, Jesus became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. When I get to heaven, I'm not going to list off the things that I did that I thought were wonderful. Oh, our church had a free community Thanksgiving dinner. Jesus, aren't you impressed? All that's going to matter is that the blood of Jesus washed away my sins. And I put my faith in Christ. End of story. I've asked this question so many times in the last 30 years, and you'd be amazed at the things people say. When you go to heaven, and this is not in the Bible, but it's just a diagnostic question to provoke people's thinking. If God should say to you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? And I've heard people tell me, I am a good person. And I get a little smirk on my face. I try not to laugh. Okay, and I just say, do you know that we're all sinners and we all need forgiveness? And our goodness, quote unquote, will not get us uh, to heaven. Here comes the kids. Rowie, where's my cookie? I saw her at the school the other day. Libby and I were serving milk. And uh, she walked through and got her snack, and I said, Rowie, I'm going to take your snack and eat it myself. <laughs> and she sneered at me and, and put her plate back here, and I was like, give me the snack now. She wasn't scared a bit. It's because Tim McNames is her grandpa, and if she has survived Tim so far, she can survive about anything. Write down 2 Corinthians 5.21 and Romans 1.17. The righteousness that Jesus gives us by faith is the only righteousness uh, that matters. The last one in that middle section, God's assessment is the only one that matters. The last section about children. Okay, look what it says in verse 15. People were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. It was a common practice at that time to take a newborn infant to a rabbi and have the rabbi place their hands on the child and pray a blessing on them. Okay, so this was happening here. Okay, see what it says next. Okay, when the disciples saw this, they rebuked them, okay? Uh, we've seen this account in other places in the Gospels. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Okay? Last section, we'll wrap it up. Worship team, can you come? The disciples thought Jesus was too busy for children. Okay? You know how much the Awana ministry means to me and vacation Bible school. I have no greater delight in life than seeing kids run around this building having fun. And you say, Drew, that doesn't sound very spiritual. Are you giving him the word of God? <laughs> of course. But the container in which the word of God comes to them had better have a smile on its face and better laugh and better have fun, okay? So important, okay? 
Children must trust their father for daily provision. Okay? The third one, our heavenly father is perfect and worthy of our trust. And the kingdom of God is for those who exercise childlike faith. Don't get old and mature and crotchety in your faith. Stay as a child, delight in Jesus. Be a channel for the grace and the love of God wherever you go. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you. You're good. We love you and we thank you for your endless love to us. In Jesus' name, amen.